I am Joel Novoa. I am the director of episodes five and six, Match Point and Kicks Gets Chicks uh, from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to Cobra Kai Companion. Welcome back to another episode of Cobra Kai Companion, and I am Peter. I am Brianna. And today, you guys, we have a very special guest, director from season four, Joel Novoa. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> Hello. Very nice to, to be here, and thank you for having me. No, absolutely. You know, Brianna and I, we were talking right before we got started, and um, both of us did research separately. And then when we both got on the camera, we're like, did you know this about him? Did you know? Like, we were just, uh, you know, we're, we're, yeah, we're just very honored to, to have you here. So, so much to talk about. Um, yes. You, you have a, a very fantastic story. And, you know, for those that are familiar with the Karate Kid and Cobra Kai, there's, you know, kind of underdogs and, and uh, things, things of that nature. But you, uh, you, you were born in New York, grew up most of your life in Venezuela uh, to parents who are also filmmakers. Uh, and then at some point you decided you wanted to study law. Uh, so a, a lot there. Can you, so talk, talk about like going from New York to Venezuela and growing up with parents who are filmmakers, but deciding to go into law at first. Yeah, so I um, I was born almost on a film set because since I was six years old, I you know stepped for the first time on a set in my life. And actually there's a photo of me with my mother on a theater play that she was doing uh, on Broadway. And so I was, you know, I kind of like spent all the first time of my life between theater and film. And you know that all the kids have this rebellious moment in which they're like, you know, I wanna, I wanna go to theater, I wanna go to film, I wanna, you know, I wanna do something artistic. I had the completely opposite thing. It's like, I, um, my rebellion was being a lawyer and which is, that was something unheard in my family. And I actually studied it for five years and I worked on it for two years. And it was the best thing that happened to me because I think I was, I was always a storyteller and I was always finding stories as I was studying. And my first film actually came from those years uh, studying law. You know, like I got, I got exposed to so many interesting documents that I ended up, you know, making my first thrillers out of that. And the thing is, you know, for me, it never went away. You know, I was, I, I had a company that we did corporate videos and wedding videos. So I was paying my university with that. So I've, I've always been involved. I've never left it. And uh, I, I feel like, you know, it's, for me, it was difficult to leave it because it was the only thing I knew. So, you know, when all the kids went on vacations to Disney World, I was going to the jungle to, to shoot a film. Or I remember I was nine years old and, my mother was shooting a film about, uh, it was called Glue Sniffer. And it was about the, uh, you know, the, the, the street kids, the, the, the kids that live on the street and they sniff glue in order to, to, to fight hungerness. And we were shooting on places that it were very dangerous and very, you know, th those are not places that were good for kids, but 
you know, I, my mother always exposed me to everything and, and I think she got in a lot of trouble, but it was the best thing that happened to me because I learned to, um, to see life in a way that was, uh, different to everybody around me, you know, like, um, I, one day, I, I, I remember when, when we were shooting that film, I had a Super Nintendo, which was out. And I remember that this memory of um, we were shooting the film and the kids that, you know, they were real homeless kids and they were, they were home because, you know, they were in a feeding for wardrobe or something because, you know, and we ended up playing Super Nintendo together and, you know, we connected a lot by playing Super Nintendo and, and, uh, and, you know, that was, those were experiences that not any, any kid had. So, you know, it was difficult for me to walk away from so many experiences that I had since I was a little kid on the film industry. <laughs> I, I think you um, grew up with a very unique situation, uh, having been exposed to, uh, you know, the different sets and, and again, parents of, of, of filmmakers, I, I feel like maybe it also uh, led you to kind of take some risks of your own. Uh, and I kind of wanted to, to um, if you can speak on it, your, your film God's Slave, uh, which, um, you know, caused some controversy when it first came out. And if I uh, read the article correctly, you, you left Venezuela because of the film? Yes, I, uh, I shot that film and... Um, when I when I did that film, we actually did it with almost no money. We found some funding, you know, in different countries, and we didn't know if it was going to do well or not. And I was using a lot of documents that I found through um, Venezuela and Argentina and court cases regarding this incident that was never cleared and that that involved a lot of government figures from Venezuela. So what happened was when the film premiered and it started doing a festival run that was a little bit bigger than what we expected. It was what we hoped, but it was bigger than what we expected. Um, the, there was, uh, the, the government took, you know, took trouble with it and they imposed a short film before our film, kind of like a propaganda short film. So everybody that saw that film could have the other side because they saw it as, as one-sided at the beginning. So I complained and I protested about it. And the next thing I know, there's a court order on my on my home <laughs> saying that I needed to go to court. And on a regime, you know, that's never something good because um, you never know what's going to happen. And I remember I was flying to San Sebastián uh, in Spain and I never came back. And I always tell this that I have my my car i had a car that i that i bought there like for, that i had for like for 12 years in venezuela or for 10 years and i i couldn't even get it out it's still in the same parking lot that it, that it was on 2010 when i had to leave the country oh my goodness yeah that's i mean that that's qu quite a story and and that was about 2013 i if, yeah if, if no, I'm not it was a, a little bit before the film came out on 2011 Okay, but it's marked as a 2012 film because uh, because of the international distribution, but that right. was in 2011. So yeah, because it has to make the circuits and stuff. Um, you premiered it at the uh, Santa Barbara International Film Festival, which uh, yes. also you were the winner of the the Nueva uh, Vision Award. 
Yes. Uh, for, for Will. So you must have been uh, uh, very proud, you know, like uh, all things considered, I suppose that yeah. uh, it had some reach. Yeah, it, it, it did. It, it started um, yeah, for a, it, it was a, it, it was a little film when we did it. You know, we, we actually we had a lot of those troubles that every indie filmmaker have, you know, like my main character um, who's, you know, is a great actor. His name is uh, Mohamed Alcaldi. He at the, at the moment he was a refugee, so he couldn't fly from one country to the other, and the film needed to be shot in three different countries. So we were literally shooting one side, like let's say one angle on one country, and then the reverse angle on another country. That's how that's how we made that film because he couldn't leave the country, and we really wanted him to be the main character. So from going from that to a to a film that was being exposed in Santa Barbara, in Huelva, in Mar del Plata, in in uh, Palm Springs, like that, that festival, start, the festival secret was kind of big for that, for that film. And, you know, it, it was, it was a lot more than we thought it was going to be on the moment. And it, it opened up a, a huge amount of doors. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see why Variety calls you, you know, one of the a filmmaker to keep an eye on, you know, of, if you want something done, you, you're going to get it, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, I admire that about you. That's 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 incredible. That's that's really amazing. No, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I always say like my when I, when I was growing up in in Venezuela, and you know my dream was always to be the biggest film director of my country and to represent you know my country and to 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 tell, to tell the stories that I was exposed to, and so you know when this started happening it was it was like a big crisis because you know it was okay now the world has is offering you a lot of opportunities but all those opportunities are away from every from the place that you had all your dreams about <laughs> and you know i'm I, spanish is my first language and venezuelan is my accent and you know it's it's, it's something that you're never going to be able to run away from <laughs> right and so so you come to hollywood and um, you know, for for many cultures, uh, we, we feel that we're underrepresented in in Hollywood. And uh, I know that you uh, started an initiative a few years ago, Latinx Directors, uh, okay. a website, basically an answer to Hollywood saying like, no, you have no excuses to to hire Latinx um, uh, filmmakers. Uh, can you talk about that and and how it started? Yes, um, uh, I think one thing that um, that I have a lot is. Um, and I think that's the way my my parents raised me was never uh, you know, never stay on the excuse. Always try to find a way uh, out of everything, you know. And I was tired of hearing uh, so many friends complaining about the business and nobody being able to offer any solution to it because the problem on the business side is that you do need people to help you out. And I feel like the problem with the Latin American culture is that we have a hard time sometimes, and I think that's changing, but we have a hard time, you know, helping each other out. It feels like a, a lot of us feel like people are making us a favor. And I didn't want to go to the opposite side of like being resentful or anything, because to be honest, I've been helped by a lot of people and not necessarily, you know, people from minorities. I've been helped from a lot of people that were established, you know, there's good people all over. <laughs> and so my answer was, 
let's make a list. And I think uh, this came from a conversation that I had with two fellow directors uh, who are Alberto Belli and Diego Velasco. We were on the DGA and none of us were at that point. That was in 2016. We were, I was just starting out my career in television and they, they, they were all starting their careers in television. And we were like, you know, every time we go to a meeting, everybody says, oh, there's no Latin American directors. So we're like, okay, we're not website programmers. We're not business people, but I'm, I think we, there's a way we can probably find a way of just making a website and just putting a list up there so everybody can see it. No business plan, nothing, just putting a list out there. And I thought that was going to be a one conversation thing, but it just kind of like, you know, we started meeting every week and we started building it and building it. And it grew to the point that, you know, we had a lot of support from, from variety, from deadline, from, you know, from, a, from, from a lot of the, the trades. And then studios also started helping us. And at some point we were like, okay, what, how do we grow from this? Because none of us want to, you know, none of us know how to do this. So, we're in that stage of like seeing how we grow from that and we create more opportunities for fellow directors and, and kind of like stop ending the excuse of there's no, there's no this, there's no that. And because there's a lot of people from a lot of minorities that are prepared, that are good at their job, that are creative and that have incredible backstories that make them very good candidates for directing jobs. So and that was our motivation and our, our goal was to not only cover the Latin American part, but that was the part that we knew more. That was the So we were, we were expecting to have like a 90, 100 director uh, list and we ended up with 850 or something like that. Wow. So you know, it, 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 was, it was a nice surprise and we're seeing how to grow from that. That's amazing. That's incredible. I mean, you, you guys got to be proud, right? I mean, <laughs> expect a couple the, of hundreds to almost a thousand. The, the problem is that when we started thinking about this, we were not that established. We were, you know, kind of like at the beginning of our television careers. And right now, the three of us have been very fortunate to do a, a huge amount of diverse things. So, you know, you know, it, we're, we're kind of like always like following, finding a way of kind of like keeping this going and growing at the same time that we have our careers to manage. So it's, uh, it, we're very proud and we're very happy because I've heard that it has helped a lot of people. And that was the whole intention of it. There was not another intention. I mean, yeah, you, you seem to be a very busy man, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm surprised that you even found time for us because you and I, we've been in talks and you were just in Puerto Rico filming as well, too. So you, you're just getting back from a project. Yes, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I couldn't say no. I'm, 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 I'm actually, I've been a fan of Cobra Kai for forever and, and it feels like you guys are part of the culture of the Cobra Kai. Wow. Yeah. Thank and, you. Thank you. And, so it's uh it's you know i i it was something that i would uh that that needed to be done yeah okay. I, I like that uh you talked about like your um early days in um television and uh, i know one of your early projects was arrow uh you I, I believe you filmed about three episodes uh one of which seems to be a fan favorite with deathstroke and uh, a fighting sequence <laughs> Um, now, uh, a couple of questions there. Obviously, I'd like for you to talk about Arrow, but also, um, do you have a particular genre you like to film? Obviously, you know, you're into 
the dramatics and some action. And so it seems to be a variety that you that you tackle. Yes, I've. It, it's interesting because I always find that as a director, you know, like like everyone, you're always evolving, and you're always changing. So for me, you know, I started doing action. Everybody called me for action. That's the reality. Like that's how it started from my films. You know, I all my films have a lot of action on it, and then it turned into like VFX type of films, and um, and then I started going for Arrow, which was a very action-y based show, and then Blood and Treasure, which is also like an Indiana Jones action. But the uh, the problem with uh, the, like lately, I've been more interested on on more on the dramatic comedy side, and um, that's what I gravitate to mostly, which is you know character driven stories. And obviously, I you know I I love when I have an action sequence because I know how to do them. I've learned from the best, and uh, and it's it's fun for me to organize it and to I have my own kind of way of doing it. But it's not what motivates me. Uh, actually, I I'm more motivated when I read a script, um, because you know you always as a director you always get the script a couple of weeks or a week or something before shooting. I'm excited or not excited or not excited depending on what's going on through the characters. So that tells me that I'm a character guy. So if uh, if the episode is something dramatic and has nothing happening, but it's an important character moment, I'm going to be super connected with it. And uh, so, you know, that's that's what I'm gravitating to lately. And, and that's what I like about Cobra Kai and from a lot of the things that we've done in Cobra Kai, which is, the genre seems to be secondary to the character-driven stories, and that's that's what uh, that's what I see on my future or, or on my ideal future. <laughs> uh, speaking a little bit uh, back on when you were talking about you know directors with fascinating backstories that have all of these different things in their past that they bring. Um, you said you went to college for five years. I assume that you earned your JD degree or did you get the LLB? No, um, and any- then, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, and then you use that as a springboard for an MFA from the AFI. Yes. So how I, I assume not very many people do that. So what's the story behind that? Plus all of the filming you've been doing since 2016 at the same time. Yeah, I am in in Venezuela. We have um, you only go for college for five years. So we don't have undergraduate and graduate. You just go for five years. So you get the equivalent of a JD on those uh, on those five years. And then, you know, you, you have one year of practice. And if I wanted to be a lawyer here, I just, I can go straight for the bar, which I never wanted, but it was a, a plan B at some point. And um, I think what what happened from there is, actually, when I, when I went to AFI, I never studied film before. I, you know, I've, I was always on a film set, but I never studied it. So I'm, I knew how to make a shooting plan. I knew how to produce a film, I know how to make a, how to make a budget, but I've never studied the classics. I've never studied, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the important films that make our industry. So, 
And when I went to AFI, I already directed two features. And I think I was a very weird case there because I was coming from making features. And then the first day on AFI, I remember they tell you, okay, so you have to go, you have to crew up for your fellows. So I was like grabbing cables and being a PA, bringing food for everyone after making two films. So it was a very interesting experience because I got to, I became a little bit more humble those years. I was a little bit arrogant. Like everybody, when they do their first films, I feel we are all very, you know, creatures that when you get a little bit of honor or prestige, you know, you start going a little bit big. And I was, you know, my, my films were starting to play at that point. And, um, and then I ended up, uh, I ended up on AFI for those two years. And I was all about making connections. You know, I, I was like, I need to make connections because I don't know anybody in Los Angeles. And, and what happened was the opposite. It was not, it didn't work for me too much for connections. It worked for me for the craft. And I ended up making a short film that kind of unlocked everything here in, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, because, you, you know, we, we, we started going to the festival circuits. The name was Maxom. It was a film based on the checkpoints between Israel and Palestine. And um, we researched, we went to Israel, we did the whole research, we shoot it here in Los Angeles. And then that opened a lot of doors here in terms of representation, in terms of, in term, it opened up a lot of collaborations mm -hmm. that turned into a lot of jobs here in Los Angeles. Uh, which were the films that started in 2016, uh, which were mostly horror films that I did with Epic uh, Pictures and Universal. And that all came from the two movies and from from AFI. But yeah, that's that's my story here. <laughs> it is, is an incredible one. I mean, uh, one of those films was uh, Day of Reckoning, right? Yes. So um, a, a couple of these, Day of Reckoning and... Uh, I, I, oh, is that the one? There's, there's, there's. I know two of your films are available on IMDb TV for streaming. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, it may be ID two. That was a film I, I did in it UK. It wasn't that one. Um, I, I, I don't want to pull it up and and get rid of the screen, but I, I, I know Day of Reckoning is available for streaming if anybody's interested. Because you, you were talking about working with visual effects, and obviously that 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 film would be would be one. Uh, was was there challenges? I don't know what kind of budget you oh, were working with. <laughs> with. A lot of challenges. <laughs> I, I I had the best producers I could ask for, and and uh, which you know we always try uh, trying to find a project together with uh, Patrick Ewald and Shaquette Berenson, where you know they they brought me in and they took a leap of faith in me because you know I was coming from making you know I was coming from making hooligan films in the UK or you know, intellectual thrillers in Venezuela. And they had this very massive VFX project. And, uh, and you know, I, I went to their office and their first question was, have you worked with VFX before? And I was like, yeah, I've done like three, sh three VFX shots on my films. I thought, that, I, I thought that was like a lot of experience, but that was a whole massive thing because we needed to work with creatures and the network wanted to see the creatures. Like they didn't want to hide the creatures. They wanted to see them. So as producers, they were like, you know, we need to deliver this in three or four months for the network. And, 
um, can you do it? And obviously, you know, at that point I was driving Uber. I had no money. I, 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 I was like, at this point, you know, I need to make it work even if I'm not capable of doing the VFX part. So I kind of sold myself for it. And it was the best thing that could ever happen. And that's why we actually did another film together after. Uh, because it pressured me to work on something that I've never worked with before to, you know, grab references. You know, I ended up going to, you know, I remember that that Guillermo del Toro uh, exposition was here in LA at that point. So I was going there, you know, with, with my now wife, we're like grabbing references from, from that so, so we can put it on the film. So, you know, we were getting references all over and in terms of vfx and I've, I've never had that experience before so i i feel like i learned uh to or I, tra I trained a muscle that was completely untrained on <laughs> until that moment and uh and that ended up you know leading into the television work that happened later yeah brianna do you want to ask about walker i mean because i know jared's more your guy oh yeah well look, yeah good because i am I, I have been um, a huge Supernatural fan. So um, could you briefly describe your experience working with Jared Padalecki, um, an enormous talent, also an enormous man? How hard <laughs> is it to film when your leading man is a foot and a half taller than everyone else in the shot with him? Joel, aren't you tall too? I feel like a lot of pictures I've seen of you, you look to be taller than a lot of people as I well. I am very tall, but I have to say <laughs> what you're mentioning is very interesting because, uh, by, by the way, Walker is great and Jared is a great captain of the team because he he's the nicest guy and uh, he he has such a good energy and he like he's just great to be around with. But, you know, Jared is taller than me. So I usually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to seeing people, you know, as a tall guy, you're always like looking a little bit, either, either you're looking down or you're looking in front of you, but you're never looking mm -hmm. above of you. So, mm -hmm. and as a director, you know, I'm used to that. I'm used to being tall, you know, it, I, sometimes it's a disadvantage because you, your neck is always like bent, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it, it also helps sometimes because it makes you feel, you know, tall. But, you know, Jared is, is probably the only actor or one of the only actors that I have to, I have to look him up all the time. Like, I have to, when I'm directing him, I, I'm, I'm always looking to the skies. And it's very weird for me because <laughs> it makes me feel like... Like, the, like us normal people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I was wondering, like, what would it be to have Jared direct somebody who, I don't know, is a basketball player who's, you know, or, bigger than him? It, what about Thomas? I, I don't know who's taller, Jared or Thomas Ian Griffith. Jared. Uh, oh. I think Jared. Oh, wow. Thomas, Thomas yeah, is a by like an inch and a half. than me. Okay. And how tall are you if uh if you don't I, mind? I'm me asking. six six zero or something like that. Okay. Yeah, like okay. I thought you were Tom, a little bit taller. No, and, and I but I think Thomas is probably Thomas is a little bit taller than me, but Jared is yeah. taller. Yeah, <laughs> right. Very noticeably taller. Okay. I didn't realize Jared was that tall. Wow. Yeah, he's six he Jared's six six. Okay. Wow. Okay, yeah. so just an inch taller than Thomas then. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes. He's uh 
I, I, yeah, because but, but with Thomas is different because Thomas he, he's just a little bit tall taller than me, so you know I I, I kind of forget about <laughs> about the height difference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Jared is just bigger overall. He's I mean because he's he's built like a, a linebacker, basically. He's just a big guy. He's really really buff. Where uh, Thomas is a bit leaner than Jared is. Yes, I, I think that there. I think the fact that the yard is tall is actually it's tall, <laughs> but yeah, no, both of them are extremely fit, and and yeah, Tom Th- Thomas has more the karate body, while um, Jared has more the, the football yeah. kind of body. <laughs> I could see that. Now, um, we, we've talked a lot about your background and some of the things you did. Were, were, growing up, were you a Karate Kid fan in Venezuela? Yeah, well, that goes along with what, what we were discussing. Like, you know, on Sundays on Venezuelan television, they always, uh, they always you know, presented Hollywood films, some dubbed to Spanish because some TV channels were prohibited to have subtitles. So they repeated and repeated the same films all the time. And Karate Kid was on probably once every three Sundays. And, you know, as, as a kid in Venezuela growing up on a Sunday when we had no, no streaming services or anything because it was the end of the 90s and beginning of the, uh, end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, uh, Karate Kid was always all through my childhood was there. So I, and it was the classic underdog story. and. I always, I'm a big underdog fan. Like, I'm, I'm a, I follow soccer, and and all the teams that I follow are always the underdog teams. And when there's a, I don't know, when there's a political event, I always go for the underdog. Like, I, I love underdogs, and I think the reason I love underdogs was because I was raised with Karate Kid, and uh, Karate Kid, like many other films, always tells you the story. Like, you can be you can grow from from a very bad position and become you know and and win in life or something you know that that's probably the kid's message it's like you know you you don't have to stay on like with it with with a big effort you can always be a winner in life you know it's it's something you know it's like a very straight on message that a kid gets so i think there's a little kid pardon me still that still believes that so uh, in venezuela you know you always watch that and you never think you're going to be part of that you know like and even for me that my parents were in the venezuelan industry you know my my ceiling was venezuela or probably latin america but you know but we always watched american television so or american films so you know it was millions of miles of difference from me on my couch in Venezuela to whoever was doing those films. So, you know, that was, that was probably the first discussion I had with, with, with the guys and how, how much, you know, Karate Kid was part of my childhood. I know probably mostly every frame, every musical score. And so it was, you know, being able to, to be there, you know, my first day on Cobra Kai, you know, I was like starstruck because, you know, those, those were the, those were the, 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 the characters I grew up with 
for me, those were not actors. Those were, those were characters. And so, you know, that, that, that was my journey into, into cover guy. So obviously it sounds like you've been following the show. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, uh, I, I, first, I, I want to know how do you become a guest director? Because it's, you know, season four when we finally uh, first see your name. So you're coming into a show that's already established with established characters and, you know, so you're kind of the new guy on the block, but also we talked about representation. Uh, how does it feel to see someone like Sholo Maratuena star in Cobra Kai? I think that's one of that that started way before I got in, got to the show. Like I was a fan of season one when it was on YouTube, and probably my my expectations were not that high at the beginning because there's so many remakes of so many stuff that when you watch something, it's like, oh, let's see, let's see if this is actually going to be good. And I was pleasantly surprised because I think they did representation the right way, which is they didn't do it politically. They do it, they did it, they integrated that as a core of the story. And like, I think a lot of times when when people intend too much to be, and I hate, I hate this term and I hate how it's used, but when people try to be politically correct, they forget about the story. And I think if you care about the story and you care about the world you're doing, you are going to end up being, you're, you're going to end up telling the story the right way and with the right people and with the right representation, because we're part of a canvas here in, you know, in California and in my case in Los Angeles. Uh, the canvas here is a very diverse canvas. So it makes sense to have all sorts of representation in a story like the one on Cobra Kai. Like if this story was happening somewhere completely different that didn't have that diversification, I would I would be the first one to say, why, why are they having Sholo there? But Sholo is part of this of of, of this of, of this world and it fits there. It fits perfectly. It fits like a glove. It's like you don't, you don't, you don't even have to talk about it. And then at the same time, the show doesn't. You know, the show is kind of takes different backgrounds and different spectrums and integrates them into into one. Like I like when I saw the show the first time, I was like, "Whoa, Johnny's Johnny sometimes has dialogues that some people will hate because you know." He's not very correct, but on the context and on those characters, it's what it has to be like. If if he doesn't speak like that, this show wouldn't work the way it does. It works because it's telling, it, it's talking about the reality, and it's not offering a solution. It's just asking questions, and it's talking about balance. And I think I've, I was always a fan of balance, and that's what you know, Karate Kid was about balance, and this is about balance today. And I think balance means hearing different point of views and not and and not only uh focusing on representation but also focusing on uh you know on telling a bigger story that unites everybody from different sides of the spectrum so as a guest director you know i i was already a fan i was already convinced about how good this show was and actually i had a meeting uh, i had a meeting with the guys for another project and um my wife gave she, she gave me as a gift a, a little johnny you know one of those pop figures 
and I didn't realize, and it was on the back on my on my on my bookshelf. So I, I don't know which of the three was like, is that Johnny? And I'm like, yeah. So we started talking about Cobra Kai and Karate Kid, and I I'm, I'm a little bit of a of, of, of a obsessive about certain things, and I have an analysis of every episode of Cobra Kai. I have broken them down in the rectorial point because I was using that for a reference for my own pilot that I was writing. And so we started talking about Cobra Kai and we ended up talking for an hour and a half about Cobra Kai. <laughs> and what happened, which was funny, is like I was I was shooting a, film, um, a show in Colombia and in Mexico and we were doing, I think, uh, 10 episodes back to back. And... Um, COVID hit very hard the show, so they sent me home. Uh, you know, I was very, very sad. And and you know, when I was home, I they they they, they give me a call from Colombia saying like, you know, we're going back to the show in in two weeks or something like that. And and then the same day that that happened, I get a call from the studio saying if I could take. A, an episode that starts next week in Atlanta and I was very confused because I had the other show but I remember I was talking to my wife and my wife said there's no way in hell I'm gonna let you not do that show you've been a fan of that show forever if you don't do that show you're gonna be miserable for life so I had to do it and I just jumped on a plane six days later and I ended up you know my first week was doing that rematch <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, That's I, I, actually I, I, what I was what I was going to ask was uh, speaking of the underdog going from this enormous fan of the Karate Kid as a kid to as an adult, as a man getting to direct the rematch. Uh, what can I mean, give us that story. What what did that feel like? Oh, it it, it was. I was very nervous because it wasn't a whole arc for that. You know, I first, you know, you get called, you go there to do the episodes. At that, at that point, I met the guys, as, as you know them, because you, you've dealt with them a lot. They're incredible people. But, you know, at, the, at that moment, I probably spoke to them, you know, two or three times before. So, you know, I, I get there and then there's this, like, I, I, I read the script and I see the rematch. And, I, and I'm like, whoa, is, it, is this me doing this? <laughs> and then I get there to I, I get to Atlanta, and then all the producers are, "Oh, you're doing the rematch! Oh, you're doing the rematch!" <laughs> I go and I meet, and I meet Ralph, and I meet uh, Billy, and they're like, "Oh, so you're doing the rematch?" And I'm like, "Okay, I guess every the expectations of everybody is very very high here." And um, and then they do the schedule, and I see that the rematch happens in three or four days. So I was like, "Okay, so I I just landed in Atlanta. I had four days to prepare the rematch." <laughs> And, um, and, uh, I, I was very, very, very nervous because I feel like when some, when you care about something a lot, you get usually even more nervous. And I really cared about this and I didn't want to show it. You know, I wanted to be in control. I wanted to, I wanted everybody to feel like I knew what I was doing. I, I was super nervous and, um, and then, you know, and then we started the technical preparation and which is an, another story. And usually one of the things that I've, you know, going to your previous question about being a guest director, one thing that I learned from a professor on mine called Andy Walk, who's a television director who did Sopranos. 
uh, he said, always focus on the content. You know, erase everything around, around, forget about your ego, forget about everything, focus on your content and you'll find the answers. So it's kind of like a Miyagi-Do type of, <laughs> type of philosophy, mm -hmm. but um, I, that's what I did with that rematch. And, and, and it, was, it was incredible. It was, it was one of the best days of my life. Speaking of the Miyagi philosophy, that's actually something that you follow. Like you, you kind of identify a little bit more with Miyagi, though. I, I think I saw a tweet of yours that said that. Yeah. I, I'm, um, I, I, I follow. I think balance is the most important thing, and and so that's why I think you need a little bit of Johnny in you. You, you even need a little bit of Chris, and even a little bit of Terry Silver. Sometimes I find myself agreeing with Terry Silver. Which is very weird, <laughs> but, but but overall, 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 I I want to believe and I try to believe uh, in the Miyagi Do philosophy. I I I think it goes along with the with the um, with all the the you know step by step philosophy. I think it was the Kaizen philosophy also the one you know kind of like it says that if you integrate one little habit every day. Uh, your amount of superation is incredibly bigger than if you just go abruptly at everything. So that's that's why I try to that's what I try to integrate in my own life. But sometimes you have to be a little bit Johnny Lawrence too. Sometimes, yes. Um, in Match Point, uh, we get a, a a parallel between the two senseis, John, Johnny and Daniel. Kind of, they starting to have that riff. You know, they're working out, but maybe maybe not so. And then you got. Terry Silver, who wants to integrate himself into Cobra Kai, but Chris is now like, well, I'm not sure if you're going about it the right way. Did you, did you find any challenges working with that storyline for, for those characters? Um, no, that was actually, probably that, that was the best part because it felt to me that it was already established. You know, it was, the, all, all those dynamics were established at the beginning of season four and in the in in terms of the preparation, it was established, you know, in seasons one, two, and three, and even in the Karate Kid movies. So um, I think the challenge, the, the, I think the challenge was how to maximize it, you know, how to give it visual the visual languages that will support each other, you know, each vision. Like probably for me, every time I shoot and uh, with the, you know. I'm not throwing any spoilers, but every time we you work with Ralph, I'll try to have a specific visual language for him. And then every time I work with Billy, I have a specific visual language for him. And so right now it's like, uh, like if you see like in the montage, we're using a lot of handheld and a lot of like, we even use zoom-ins, which is something that I've always wanted to use, but I've, there's no show in which you can use them. But, you know, I use them a lot with Billy. It's like, you know, it, it, it fits him, you know, when he puts his headphones on, when he's, you know, running on, like, you, you, you can get away with cool stuff with him using zooms. While with the Ralph, I always use more static, more precise, probably more side dollies. And so my job on those were executing, giving them the right rhythm. And uh, so what I did was I, I always play them the, the, the music. So we kind of got the vibe on set on how the montage was going to be cut later. And that even comes from the writing, I think from Bob's script, from Bob, Bob, Bob Arden's script. He, he adds already the bits of music there. So we kind of knew what was going to be playing there. So it makes my life so easy and much better. 
Yeah. Between the scripting and the visualization there, um, I know that, you know, the, the show itself likes to flip the script and that that montage absolutely did because we are used to seeing Johnny waking up with the hangover and Daniel being the one who is working on his personal development. And here we've got Daniel waking up with the hangover and Johnny working out. So that I thought that was brilliantly done between you and Bob. So yeah, that, congratulations. I, and thank I, you. I, Perfect. I give, I give 70% of that credit to Bob because I, I, that was one of the things that I loved and, and, and to the guys, because, you know, it's always the writer's room kind of managing the pieces around. And I think their their level of I, I I don't like to call it perfection because I don't like that word, but probably their their level of of uh, achieving their the best they can with the brainstorming it usually shows on the scripts. It's like the scripts are so well worked out that it, it's a dream for a director because you know you can I, I'm I'm always in the belief that if you get good scripts and if you get good visual ideas on the script you can improve that and even make it you know make it even better and you don't have to make up stuff from zero you can already you know they're already giving you a base that is great and the montages and flipping those storytelling moments uh, you know where where I, I love when when uh, when ralph says oh yeah he's gonna he's probably gonna forget about it and then he's like <laughs> tweeting right. and running and so it's it's like you know that's uh I think a lot of the comedy, it's my type of comedy. It's like, I, I, I don't think I'll be a good guy to do a, you know, like a punchline comedy, you know, or a, or a, you know, dialogue based comedy, but this one is a situation comedy. So, you know, the fact of like flipping those two characters for one second or, you know, or, or having the kids, you know, kind of like seeing the tweet from jo from Johnny at school, mm -hmm. just, I, I was laughing when I was reading it, so it just makes my life so easy. <laughs> I have a couple questions about the montages. Um, uh, for those that don't know, I am a mail carrier. So like when I saw the sequence where Johnny kicks the mailbox, I, I, I took a little exception of that. Um, <laughs> was that on paper? Like, Do you have any insight to uh, filming that day or that that particular sequence? Yeah, well, that particular sequence, that was that was shot in Los Angeles. So oh. I was not, sadly for me, we prepared that sequence together, but I was not the one there with the camera. And um, because that, that's, uh, but it, it, it was written and it was oh. always, always there. But the cool thing about that montage is that like the guys were very flexible with it. They told me, they gave me the montage and they were like, if you find something crazy, something, just do it. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we, we, we're okay. We have this montage, but just look. So um, I have a feeling like they were doing the same thing when they were shooting that scene that I was doing in Atlanta, okay. which is like you know finding stuff in the moment. But that that was that was already that was already scripted. Did you uh, were you there when they filmed on the beach? No, that oh, broke okay. my heart. No, oh my goodness, because um, so at uh, Paley Fest I, I discovered recently, um, Billy talks about a deleted scene where he's running on the beach and he runs by two two women that are laying on the beach and he runs out of the frame but then comes back into the frame it's like hey you know there's this fight tonight if you guys want to come kind of thing so uh i you know you you read the script where was there anything else um that you remember that didn't make it into the final uh product yeah well the biggest thing that 
like there's all sorts of stuff like that. Billy is a big improviser, mm. so on on chicks get uh, on chicks gets kicks. I'm sorry, I'm the worst for pronunciation, <laughs> but on, on that one, like a lot of those scenes on the school where Billy kind of like taking the script to a new level at some point. Uh, so he, he he likes to improvise and a lot of things usually, you know, some, some things make it to the cut, some things inevitably don't make it to the cut. I, in the case of episode five, um, the, the biggest cut was all, there was a big montage in the, um, on the restaurant scene between Terry and, uh, Chris intercutting with the whole tattoo shop, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when 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 they shave um, uh, Hawk's head, mm-hmm. and um, that was a big montage of something that happened before there with the kids. Like that ended up be- being trimmed, and I I think it was the right call because you know it makes the episode go faster and and it, the pacing gets way better. Um, that was probably the biggest cut. I think the montages they left. We were like all those things of uh, of Johnny breaking those bricks and all that. I think that was scripted as one time, and we did it like four times. And I think the four times made it to the cut. Like everything yeah. that it's fun, it usually makes it to the cut. <laughs> yeah, it, it, um, I actually kind of like that that they kept all four shots because it's almost like every time he just thinks back to some moment between Johnny and Daniel, and it's just taking out some frustration, you know. So I, I think it actually kind of works. Yeah, and and I, I I was a fan of of, of those moments, and you know those, I, I like that location a lot. It has the greediness of Johnny. I think it represents him a lot, and uh, so I think uh, you know I, I I was a huge fan of that montage. I, I was very sad I couldn't do that day in Los Angeles because that seemed to be like the <laughs> the ending of the montage part. But you know it, I'm already fortunate to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we could talk about episode six. Um, this one starts out with the All Valley Committee, where from the trailer, we're like, what is going on? Because it, it just made it seem so ominous, you know, that they're making like a really huge decision here. Um, can you talk about filming with with all of them? That, that was pretty cool because um, I was talking to the guys about references uh, for this. And... Um, and we were talking a little bit about giving it more of a The Office vibe to them, like kind of like as if it was a spin-off of the show, but not the actual show. So, um, so we were like, we were allowing the actors to improvise a, lot, a, a little here and there. And if you see, we're doing the the camera, the way the camera is moving, it's like it's like The Office. <laughs> and um, and I think the idea of those scenes. Like was to, you know, it was to be like I think it was okay if people were confused a little bit at the beginning. It's like, whoa, that what 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 is what is happening? I, like some people probably even forgot that they saw these characters uh, a season and a half ago, and they haven't seen them ever since. So um, it was, you know, it was kind of the idea to get everybody a little bit confused at the beginning, and then while the scene was progressing, you know, you started to see what was happening and what was the importance of it. It was like the setup for the second half of the season. And, or that's how I see it. It was, you know, it was, it needed to advance the plot. And I think they kind of, that happens on seasons one, two, and three on episode six, usually that there's this scene that kind of advances the plot for the second half of the season. 
So, but it was very fun because it was getting characters that were not established so much before and just getting them into their inner conflicts and this inner crazy, you know, one was over the top. The other, I, 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 the other one was completely out of place. That's a fish out of the water. So it was like, it was pretty cool to have the opportunity to, to direct them. It was, I, I remember that as one of the most fun days we had on, <laughs> I was going to say the office. Of Cobra, Kai. <laughs> <laughs> Cobra Kai, the office, the office. or the office, uh, Cobra Kai spinoff. Uh, Matt Lewis and Kara Ann Marie, a couple of weeks after season four dropped uh, on Twitter, they were looking for anyone that had photographs of the whiteboard. Um, and all of the the different ideas that they had um, that were written up there, um, like uh, get new hot dog vendor or corn dog vendor and just all kinds of ridiculous things. So do you have any photographs of the whiteboard um, or do you remember what was on it? I remember a lot. A lot and Michael, who I think you've interviewed and who, he had he has a photo. He was the one that took the photo that day. And I remember we had special guests and we had, I think, uh, I, I think it was kind of like an homage to, to a lot of the, the people that have declared themselves fans of the show. So I think we had Mindy Kalik there and we had, um, who else we had there? Wow. And, she was yeah. I think like we, we had a whole list of like, Special oh, guest. Oh, right, right. Okay, I thought you meant like actually on the set. No, no, okay. no. It was on the on the board. Right, right. That that we did and see. Yeah. Actually, I think Michael did end up sharing that. Michael, I think Michael shared because M- Michael was there with me all, all day and like sometimes in between scenes, like he had an idea for the board, so he was adding it on the board, and we were trying to place it on a way that he can make it to the to 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 the screen, but. Like it made it, but it was like always out of focus because there was no way I could like focus on the board. But it was always there. Like we were bouncing around that board for all those scenes. <laughs> and I remember he, he stepped up for a second and he came like, I have an idea. And he writes something on the board. Yeah, I think Malcolm Jamal Warner's name was written on there, but then was scribbled out really, really heavy. We have to find out what happened with Malcolm Jamal Warner someday. <laughs> I think I think next next time you have the guys, you have to ask them. <laughs> yes, the Malcolm Jamal Warner incident. Oh, they'll never reveal any, anything to us. Um, no, no, just like Applebee's. Uh, exactly, the <laughs> Applebee's joke. Um, one of my favorite sequences uh, in Kicks Get Chicks. Yes, I had to think about it too. Sorry <laughs> about that title, Matea. No, I don't. I don't know who chooses the titles. Uh, titles, but uh, Matea Green. She wrote that episode. Um, wh- one of my favorite sequences is when uh, I-, I believe Daniel. Well, Daniel and Robbie are talking in the convenience store. One one question is actually when Robbie walks in, and then he, I, I-, I think either fist bump or gives um, Nestor a high five. Was that scripted? Did, do you remember that that was not scripted i okay. think that was that, that was uh that was on the day and um i think sometimes sometimes something is not scripted and the guys usually have ideas um that are you know that come last minute and i don't remember i don't remember if it was in the last revisions uh, because sometimes the revision comes the day before. I I honestly can't remember right now. Um, but usually the, the guys give a lot of importance to to 
to you know to telling all the stories and you'll see <laughs> oh, there's a lot of that in, on on season five and mm. kind of like like uh some, some little being, touches uh, here there touch exactly the, the, yeah. the subtleties that some people catch and some people want and i, I, lo- I love that stuff. i'm not doing any spoiler but no no, no i i, I totally understand because <laughs> when we got the screeners for season four we we're watching it and i immediately caught on to that i go Okay, they they know each other, so Robbie must go in there pretty often. Then for him to, you know, give Nestor a high five, and that that's just uh, gives more to Nestor's character there too, who we ha- we haven't seen since the beginning of season two. That okay, well he's still around, you know, he's still around, you know, even though all these other things uh, we've been watching, we haven't seen him. So I just I, I love that little touch of, of that. Um, I think that's something great that they do all all the time, and and it's they care so much for the world around it that it makes more uh, real yes and that's you know i think one of the advantages there's one of the rules we have on set or that they have on set is um there's you know there's always a writer on set and that helps so much because they as a director you go there you know you have great ideas you're like but there's a there's a whole world that they're more in touch with with the with the you know with the world behind the world mm-hmm. so with the world building around so you know by doing that and by them being being so close to everything you get to maximize everything so it's tell the story told with that with great authority and and that's something that i touched before i got into the show so you know that that's that's one of my biggest learning experiences and and it's something in my career that I try to to, to implement. Yeah, no, I, I I totally get it. I I was actually on a live earlier today on Ken Ken Cole's channel and uh, we were talking about this photo that we took in LA with uh, Sensei William Christopher Ford who plays Dennis in Credit Kid Part 3. And I was like, yeah, you know, we were all having breakfast and I just thought it would be so funny if we did a breakfast club picture like the poster and so we all uh-huh. pose like the poster and so it's just me just adding that little extra touch just to make something cool for for people who want to see something like that so and th- yeah so I, I, and, and i and i think that that's that's unique i think that's what that's what makes a difference at the end <laughs> yeah so so that that scene right there the, the reason i br- bring that up because um i'm just i, I would like to get some insight on like the dis- discussion on how you guys were going to film that because you know we we've all seen it. it looks like terry's a bit of a shark walking down the aisle and, and here here's daniel and then they kind of have their first actual talk together yes i think the challenge with that scene and that was a, actually we we shot that I think that that was the day that we got shut down for COVID. <laughs> oh no! And um, I think that the challenge that we were talking there was always that you know the convenience store is very small, and so you know there was there was not many ways of shooting that scene. It, it, you can only do it as an L because you have the entrance and you have one hole inside. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge there was like, okay, so how do we make you know, uh, like, where is everybody coming from? You know, where is the, when, you know, Daniel is inside, but then Terry has to come from the outside. And then where is Robbie? So it, it was a lot of geographical spots there. And I have, I, I can share with you, I have I have uh, a lot of the graphs that I make up because we, we, we I think all the directions we do it, we make graphs from, 
from from everything and from from how every character goes. So that that was even if it feels challenging, that was not that challenging because there was no way. <laughs> there, there were just two ways. It was just an L. Um, following up on that scene, uh, there was a, a decision, and it had to have been a conscious decision because up until now, the last three and a half years, they have put quite a bit of effort into making Johnny and Daniel appear to be the same height, even though Ralph is three inches shorter than Billy. Um, and some very obvious ones, like you can see that Ralph is standing on a platform, you know, to be the same height in <laughs> that scene. They do not hide the fact that that Thomas is, you know, a good seven inches taller than Ralph. Um, so w what was the decision making there? Was it just so Terry could loom over him like they like he did when he was a kid? Or, I mean, what was the thought process involved in not making Ralph taller for that scene? Yes, I think I, I can answer about the the height difference. The actual shooting of that of that part of the scene happened post COVID. I I don't know if you know, but we were shut down for 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 I think like ten days, and then I couldn't come back to finish up that scene. So I couldn't see the actual execution of it. Like we preferred it together, we did it, but then I think it was Josh who who finalized doing that scene, um, if I'm not mistaken. But that was something that happened a lot later on, and I think what we decided, or like the the decision process was, you know, we want to use everything we can from Terry Silver to make him as threatening as possible especially for Daniel, especially for their backstory. And even for with that scene that we had on the on the backyard on on Miyagido, um that Terry's there, like we we didn't use anything there. And the mm -hmm. idea was to make uh, you know to make Ralph feel that you know he you know make the stakes bigger. And I think by giving him that much of a high difference, we give it a lot of power. And I think so far, I think it was the right call because with mm -hmm. Johnny, he does have an advantage in terms of the height, but he also has it with, uh, with Ralph. But I think it, it was all based on that. It was all based on character dynamics. And sometimes I think it's also based on, <laughs> on, on being comfortable in the location or uncomfortable, but I don't remember using anything on the other scene that we did with the two of them. So uh, as we get ready to wrap up, I, I, I want Brianna to ask all the questions that she wants to, because I, I feel like I've been hogging the mic a little bit. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll ask well, one more thing and I'll l let her, uh, e even if we go back to 405, um, in Kick Skit Chicks, um, you, that episode also introduces a new character, uh, Devin Lee. Uh, which we we see uh, doing debate. And uh, can you talk about uh, introducing uh, the Devin? Yes. <laughs> I, I, sadly, sadly for that scene, that was also the, one of the other scenes that we couldn't. Do. Oh, no. The reason what, oh, what no. happened was, like usually you have a block of, um, a, which is usually around eight days. I don't remember how many days exactly. So when we were on day seven, we had you know we had. Two, day, two days to go, we were shooting the restaurant and the convenience store, and we had to shut down production for a week because of COVID. 
and I couldn't come back because I was going to another show and I couldn't do the only introduction, mm. the one with the book and everything. I, I, I couldn't introduce her. I've worked with her later, but I, 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 sure. I, I, I couldn't do her introduction. Okay. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's still a great introduction nonetheless, you know, so. Okay. So the only question that I was left with on 405 was the um, filming of the fight. Well, I guess it's two questions. Um, one was um, the, de the decision to have Daniel use techniques on Johnny that Johnny had seen him use on Crease. Um, and well, I mean, I'm sure Bob had written it that way. But like, how did you get into their heads to direct that? Because Johnny is really kind of more disappointed than angry, it seemed like. So what was what was your decision making in that, you know, filming that sequence? Yes, I, I think that, that, that's a great question, by the way. Um, I think one of the first things we did there was we turned that fight into a, into a story, into a movie. And the idea of the movie was to escalate, you know, make an escalation point and get to the maximum climax, which is that second to last point. Uh, so we can have a resolution in the last one, which was, you know, the, the tie thing at the end. So I think what, what, when talking to Ken and to Don uh, regarding the fight, you know, the, the stunt team, one of the things was, I think we, we wanted to do stuff that were close to the actual film. And that's why, you know, I, I think I posted on, on Instagram in terms of the framing and about, you know, kind of like do a mm -hmm. couple of homage to the film. But we were saying, like, first, they're not the same age they were before. So let's use that to our advantage. Instead of making this huge physical fight, let's, you know, let's take in consideration that they're not the same age they were in the film. So right. we kind of, we talked to the actors and they were like, yeah, let's just do, I, they did, like, most of the fight is them doing their own stunts. And then the second thing is using the Cobra Kai learn, uh, journey as a learning experience for both. And um, so I think the disappointment from Johnny, I think it doesn't, it, it comes more from, um, from his relationship with Miguel than from the technique itself. I think, you know, he, he does get, you know, he, he has that what the hell moment <laughs> when... <Right>. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I think what I was trying to focus on in terms of the storytelling, because I think that's what's, you know, getting him more and more worked out is he is, you know, he wants to be proven with Miguel, who's there. And he is at the same time, he wants to prove himself because he still believes that fight was his fight. And so we, I was focusing more on the emotional side and focusing more on what happens in between the points. And I, I don't remember the exact name. And we were doing inverse stuff. Like we were also like, uh, there's one kick, the, I, I'm, I'm horrible with it, with the names and martial arts, but the kick that Daniel does on the, on the actual film, Johnny does it right now. And mm -hmm. if you see, he does it. 
uh, almost on the same way that Daniel did it on the film. So we're kind of like using this thing about, oh, they have learned from each other. They have learned, they have seen each other. Like they're, they're using, and that, that was Bob, you know, everything was already there in terms of what are the exact bits in terms of like using each other force, kind of like jujitsu, even if it's not jujitsu, but, you know, using the opponent form force. But mm -hmm. I was focusing more on like kind of telling the story and getting them worked out to the point to, you know, uh, being to, to, the to the climactic point, you know, that's why we were intercutting with, with the kids so much. And speaking of the climactic point, um, approximately how many times did you have to film that climactic point to get that kick and that punch to happen at the exact same time? <laughs> A lot of times. The weird thing about this is we had only one night to do the fight and to do the, mm -hmm. the aftermath of the fight, which is, you know, that big scene of like, the two dojos splitting up one to one side, one to the other side. So right. we were extremely limited in time. And so I remember repeating that. I think we repeated, probably we repeated like four or five times, but we shot it with three cameras plus two GoPros plus cell phone cameras plus my own cell phone camera. Like I shot it so many different ways because I didn't know which was going to be the best angle that was going to read. So we were shooting it with the crane and with then and that, like we were shooting it like from every possible angle. So it took, I think like four takes. And I, I, it, that, that fight, engineering that fight was one of the most challenging things I've ever done because, you know, when you film, you need to do everything to one side and then everything to the other side. And mm -hmm. there were so many beats happening at the same time. So, it was the logistics on that and the, the, the actual engineering of that. It took me like three days to land very specifically on all the beats that we need in every direction, which, um, which, you know, it, it was very difficult, but we, we pulled that off. It was, a, it was an all nighter and it was cold and, but you know, but Billy and, and Ralph were, you know, on top of their game that night. And, and yeah, it's a beautiful fight. Oh, ends, uh, ends with a beautiful shot too with the with the crane pulling out and seeing the entire backyard yeah that, that was the last shot we did like we were running out of time and i really wanted to do that crane shot <laughs> so uh we i just like i was literally using two cameras and then when the two cameras were over i just ran in and like took the two cameras away we just rolled the other camera so I'm, I'm used to shooting like that and i think the guys like that a lot <laughs> and, and and that's how we achieve so much material in so short time. That's great. That's fantastic. Uh, the only other question I have is about a future project. Am I am yes. I cleared to go ahead and ask? Uh, yeah, you can ask because whatever you since, want. I don't know if I have uh, too much information, but I'll answer whatever I can. Since January, I have been waiting because that is when I first read the deadline article about Kahlo. <laughs> I adore her. She is one of my idols. She is a feminist icon and I cannot wait to see it. Can you tell us where it stands? Is it still on schedule to come out third quarter? How's it looking? It's in development. I, I can tell you all the information there is. It's in development on a major streamer. Um, it's a, 
uh, usually we, we have a, my wife and me, we have a, a production company and we develop all our projects at the same time that, um, that, you know, that we do all our projects. And that one we've been developing for one year with uh, CIC Media, which is another company. And we set it up on a streamer, which I cannot tell the name yet, but we, right. we set it up not long ago. It's going to be a premium show and, and we're very excited about it. But you know how it is. Usually development takes a lot of time. We've had, we've had for example, El Gato Negro on, on development on a major streamer for, for some time now. And um, and it takes a lot of time. <laughs> so I can tell you third quarter, and then it can end up being third third quarter next year. So it's completely right. out of my hands. Right. Okay. Well, just another. Uh, here's one person who cannot wait to see that show. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and and it it, it already kind of sounds like uh, you'll um uh, uh be back for season five. So um. You know, Mariel kind of said as much for her as well. So we 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 would love to have you back and, and talk about those episodes I, too. I I would love to. I can, uh, season five is incredible and it's great and and uh, and yes, I w- once we can tell more, I'll be sure just call me and I'll be here in two minutes. Now uh, I I asked Billy this and it'll be up to you, but would you be able to describe from what you've seen and what you know? Can you describe season five in one word? Oof. Billy gave yes. me more than one word, but uh, they try to. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Yeah, R- Ralph said, "Yeah, take out all the syllables, and you know it'll be <laughs> vowels. Take out all the vowels." Take... Okay, thank you. You you saw it more than me. I'm sure. <laughs> I think if it's it's massive, massive. I like that. Wow, that's a, that's a, definitely a new one. That's a new Ooh, one. I like that. that is new. Yeah. So yeah. we've got massively. We got massive, mind blowing. And what oh, mind blowing is I completely forgot what said. <laughs> I think mind blowing is like safe when you want to, you know, uh, kind of, kind of like another word for epic, but massive. That that one is underused. Epic. Wow, epic. Right. Was, like you, you, you're all saying better words than I said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like massive. That I mean, it's it's heavy. It's yeah. weighty. It's, yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. That. I think I think I see it from a from a perspective of. Uh, of, of, of a director, but if you see it from a perspective of of um, of of, uh, of a writer or of a, of an audience person, they'll say mind blowing or they'll say epic before they say massive. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I I still like it. I okay. do. I like it. Yeah, Joel. Thank I can't you. wait. Yeah, no, I still. I mean, and you know, we are creating this content, you know, to kind of. Uh, fill in uh, the void until we hear more news about season five. So, um, you know, I, this, this was a fantastic interview, Joel. Thank yes. you for giving us so much of thank your time. Thank you, Joel. And, yeah. Your, your story. Yeah. yeah. Same here. Thank you for having me. And when you have more information about season five, let me know. <laughs> yes. way I also know well, when yeah. it comes up. You, you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. So, you know, when, when we know anything, we'll, you know, share that and you'll, you'll see. Um, so, yeah, if you uh, do you welcome any interaction, do you want to give out some of your um, uh, Twitter or Instagram if people want to follow you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Joel Nova or Joel Novoa, which is the right way. <laughs> J-O-E-L-N-O-V-O-A. I'm also on Twitter with my name and my last name as well, Joel Novoa. And, uh, and yeah, I'm around. I try to post as much stuff as I can, and I'll be posting stuff when season five comes about how we did it. 
Yeah. And for awesome. anyone uh, more interested about Latinx directors, uh, that's actually the Twitter handle at Latina, uh, Latinx yes. directors too. Uh, and I'm sure th- there'll be links and stuff to, to the website with, with all, all the, the filmmakers on there. Um, and Brianna, uh, where can uh, people get a hold of you? I am Brianna 25 on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, our YouTube archive of our own fanfiction.net. All right. For me, you guys can find me on Twitter at Cobra Kai Pod or on Instagram at Cobra Kai Companion. Companion spelled with a K. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll catch you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Haven't you done enough, princess?